Welcome back, um, everyone, to Labelling the Disabling, where we call out what actually disables people with disability. I'm joined today by my regular co-host, Ed Bird, the hey, Chief everyone. Operating Officer at the Disability Trust, and we are super pleased to introduce and welcome today Siobhan O'Sullivan, who is an academic at the University of New South Wales, a political scientist, and someone who is now navigating uh, her life as a person with disability. Siobhan now has vision loss. Welcome, Siobhan. Thank you for joining us today. My great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for this wonderful podcast resource. Yeah, welcome, Siobhan. It's going to be great to hear from you um, on your journey. Um, you know, I think this is really relevant. Um, the thing that really attracted us to talk to you today was seeing your um, media um, article recently about, uh, and I'll just read the title because it was pretty catchy. Um, the title was The Social Benefit of the NDIS is Being Undermined by Bureaucratic Hair Splitting. Is this what the future looks like for the most vulnerable? And um, it's an opinion piece and it really reflects your experience um, recently, which I think is just so interesting. I'd love it if you'd sort of give us a bit of a feel for what led you, prompted you to write that article. Absolutely. So I was uh, just living my life as a very, very privileged person, you know, a white woman, well-educated. I'm an academic. I had, a, you know, a good job and... Uh, lots of uh, social capital, friends, family, living in the city of Sydney. And then uh, suddenly it all changed very quickly. So um, it, the pandemic had already started. So this was uh, August uh, 2020 and I started to feel a little bit unwell and I felt a little bit unwell for a couple of weeks and I ended up in one of Sydney's big emergency rooms and I found out that I had ovarian cancer. Mm. And ovarian cancer is a really aggressive cancer. It comes on very quickly. It spreads very quickly. And it has a really low survival rate. So that it's not good news having ovarian cancer. But uh, the way in which they treat ovarian cancer is they normally give you uh, four rounds of chemotherapy and then they do an operation to remove the cancer. And uh, so I had my four rounds of chemo and I went in for my surgery and it's a really massive surgery. It takes about seven and a half hours. Mm. And what they do is they remove all the cancerous tissue in your body. Um, so ovaries, uterus, and then they take away any cancerous growth all throughout your abdomen. So it's a massive surgery. And when I came to from the surgery, I started saying to people, oh, you know, my right, something strange in my right side. And so it took a, about a week and a half to really work out what was going on because I was in hospital, I wasn't, didn't have my glasses on, wasn't reading, I was just trying to basically hang in there. And so then I went to see um, an ophthalmologist to find out why my right eye was a bit funny. And it was, this was not, I've had a lot of bad days in the past year and a half and this was one of them. <laughs> the ophthalmologist uh, basically determined that in actual fact there was nothing wrong with my eyes. Mm. My, both my eyes work perfectly yet I can't see any image from the midpoint so on my right hand side if I hold my head straight and just look straight ahead I can't see anything on the right hand side mm -hmm. when I've got my glasses on as I do at the moment I can see the frame on the left but nothing on the right it's just blackness and so the first thing they said was um, perhaps the cancer has gone to your brain that was the first diagnosis 
Uh, but thankfully, that was incorrect. And it turns out I just had a stroke. Wow. So, uh, you know, you're not in a good position when, you, when you're uh, glad to hear that it was just a stroke. But mm. indeed, I had had a stroke and part of my brain on the left-hand side had died. And um, I actually had a second stroke about uh, two, three weeks later, and it was in exactly the same spot. So I didn't lose any other functionality, but overall what I lost was my ability to see anything on the right-hand side. Mm -hmm. Of course, I can turn my head, and when I turn my head, I can then see what's to my right. Mm. But one of the challenges I now face is that I was perceived, I perceived the world in a particular way for, you know, 45 years and then suddenly what I see is only half of what's actually there. So before I left the hospital, they were very clear that I could never drive again and my licence was taken and that was all made abundantly clear to me. But then I was kind of set out into the world and, um, yeah, I had to adjust to this new life. And... Um, one of the things that I really wanted was a white cane because mm -hmm. I felt that I, I was, I hit my head a lot on the right at the start. I was but constantly bumping into things on the right, running into people, hitting my head. And I thought if I had a white cane, that would be something that could stop me bumping into things as much and also send a signal to those around me that I couldn't necessarily see them. So I started trying to work out how I could get a white cane and I ended up speaking to a, a, a vision uh, charity, a charity for people with, with limited vision. And they said to me, um, oh, look, we've been trying to make contact with you. You, you were referred to us. You'll be eligible for the NDIS. And okay. with the NDIS, you know, you can get a cane and whatever else. So I downloaded the forms for the NDIS and I filled them out and I took them to my GP and she verified my, you know, vision loss and I sent them all off. And I got a letter back saying that I wasn't eligible for the NDIS. And the reason that was given was that I um, that my vision might return. Mm -hmm. So I was disheartened, wow. but I was, you know, I, I, I wasn't too distressed at this point in time. And also this was during COVID, so I wasn't going out as much as I might otherwise. And of course, I've also got the ovarian cancer, so I had a lot on my mind. But anyway, time marched forward and... Um, I went to see a private ophthalmologist because there was a view among some of my friends that perhaps my vision could improve if I did certain things. And so I went and saw a private ophthalmologist and she said, look, your vision's not going to improve. The reason you can't see is because the processing centre in your brain has, has died and it's always going to be dead. And she said, but we are really expert at helping people get on the NDIS mm -hmm. and we can help you. And so they filled out um, all the paperwork themselves. And this version that they did for me was really sophisticated. It made me feel quite embarrassed about my first version that I did myself. <laughs> yeah. And so this was super detailed, lots of fancy use of language, lots of scientific terminology about my brain injury and why it's permanent and mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. But then, knocked me down with a feather, I got another rejection letter from the NDIS, and this time, the rationale was different. So that's when I started to feel quite irritated. And the reason I started to feel quite irritated was not for me, because I am well-to-do, I have a lot of social capital, and I can order myself a cane online mm. which is exactly what I did I jumped online and bought myself a white cane mm -hmm. I was irritated because there are people for whom that kind of additional expense 
would be very hard. And I do a lot of research with people who are in uh, Australia's unemployment system. And for many people, they live week to week and additional expenses of any kind, including buying a white cane, which can range between like $70 and $150, $200, that would be out of their reach. Yep. And so I, uh, I then, a couple of things happened to me at that juncture. One was the, the really nice woman who helped me with my second NDIS application, she actually said to me, and I'm happy to name this organisation because they've been so good to me, mm -hmm. she said to me, look, the guide dogs do a lot of charitable work for people with vision loss, irrespective of whether they're on the NDIS or not. And so I have been put in contact with guide dogs and a really lovely woman has come out a couple of times to visit me from guide dogs and the very first thing she said to me was, you have completely the wrong cane. This is not the cane for you. She's taken my cane that I bought online away and she's issued me with the correct cane for me. Right. And the cane I now have is absolutely perfect. It feels completely different. And then the other thing she's done is she's shown me how to use it. Yep. Rather than me just mm -hmm. trying to make it up myself, she's shown me, you know, I was holding it in the wrong hand. I was basically every single thing you could do incorrectly with the cane I was doing. Okay. And so now I'm in a position where I'm actually getting some of the assistance I was seeking through the NDIS in the first instance. Yes. But I am also irritated because, I, as I say, a lot of people are going to miss out. So that's my fury at the situation and the injustice, not for yeah. me, but for other people is what wrote me, uh, led me to write that opinion piece, which you read on the ABC, mm. Our Religion and Ethics. And uh, here we are today. Here we are. I'm really interested wow. in, in what that second rationale was. You know, you talk, because yeah. it kind of, there's so much going on there, Siobhan, like from the initial referral, I suppose, through to the NDIS, um, you know, then you've got, I think it's a, like a 28-page document, the access document. It's not like, you know, that user-friendly to begin with. So you've put in a lot of effort um, to complete this document on the, on the you know, belief that, you know, there was some support there at the end of it, including equipment. But not only that, like you've just highlighted um, the importance of the training uh, the correct assessment around what particular piece of equipment would meet your needs most effectively. I mean, all of this is the reason to keep somebody like you and and I'm anybody <laughs> can I say, but um, you know, just to give you as an example, you're you're an employed person, you're productive, you're you have a social network, um, you know, you're part of a functioning part of society. This this is there to provide that support to enable you to continue to participate you know but yes. so it feels like we've just gone down this crazy rabbit hole <laughs> and what what can I ask what was that second rationale I mean you you had the first one which was which was um your vision may yet return yes my so, vision may yet return I'm yeah. still waiting for that one yeah the second rationale was different and it was kind of fairly obscure language but I think what they were really pointing to was that my disability wasn't significant enough. And the thing about my experience with the NDIS that I find really um, frustrating and problematic is that my desires were rather modest 
if the NDIS had given me five hundred dollars, three hundred dollars to start with, they I, they would have walked away feeling absolutely chuffed, feeling yeah. as though um, they had my back. I've you know I've paid my taxes my whole life, and this is how the Australian government looks after me. Instead of that, they've given me two letter, two rejection letters with quite different accounts as to why I'm not eligible. And in the process, they've infuriated me. So I feel like I want to make another application or challenge the existing application because I think it's so unjust. And, um, and meanwhile, I've got another charitable group that's doing the work that I thought the NDIS was there to do. So I am really, really so grateful to Guide Dogs. And they're doing that pro bono, really. They are doing it pro bono and it's Mm. only luck that I found this out. Mm. The first group that I dealt with, they really were only going to assist assist me if I could get onto the NDIS. And now this group are doing it as a charitable. But again, it's just dumb luck that I became in contact with them and well, actually, it's it's it is there is luck involved, but it is also a result of the fact that I had the funds to pay a private ophthalmologist to mm-hmm. assess me, and it was in my situation even a bit of a decision because, of course, you know, professional people of this ilk, you know, any appointment's going to be three four hundred dollars. It's true. So it's not something that you do lightly. In my case, it ended up being a really worthwhile experience, but. Um, it, you know, it landed me in this situation and now, I, yeah, as I say, I feel mightily irritated with the NDIS on behalf of all the people who are going to mm. miss out. Mm. Yeah, I, um, I, I definitely can relate to your experience, Siobhan, um, as a person myself with uh, vision loss um, and navigating through the um, NDIS um, pathway that you spoke about. Mm. Yes. I mean, look, at the same time, I, I, I do have to give props where they're due and I will say that the New South Wales State Government has now given me free travel on all New South Wales public transport. I'm very grateful for that. I haven't used it yet because of the pandemic and because of um, it's challenging for me to use public transport um, and also, uh, you know, New South Wales has poor public transport infrastructure (laughs) but I am grateful and I do recognize that that is a real asset and it would be for some people with vision loss that would be really really um uh advantageous Mm. I've also just had a mighty all-in brawl um about getting access to a disability parking uh spot when carers take me places because a lot of people drive me to a lot of appointments. I've got never any medical appointments and I've got to be driven. And so I wanted to get a pass so people could drop me in the dis- stop in the disability stop, let me out kind of thing and, and, and park, you know, mm. let, because, you know, it's hard for me to walk too far without being able to see, you know, what the hell's going on. Um, and I actually have now secured that pass, but even that was really complicated and, you know, the New South Wales government, they wanted me to go into um, the Roads and Traffic Authority in person. And I was saying, well, it's not really terribly safe for me to do that during COVID. And also, I can't see, so I'm going to have to ask someone to drive me there. Mm. And what I want is for them to be able to park and they can't, you know, 
you've got all my, you've got my photo and you've got everything on file. <laughs> what yeah. is happening? So there are things about the bureaucratic system mm-hmm. that we have in place that are not friendly for people with disability and, and they're senselessly yeah. um, obstructive. Is it- is it is it a what is it is it a trust issue i mean what and and also i think there's this issue between government departments you know um whose whose responsibility is this you know i mean prosthetics and things like that you can get paid through the ndis um you might also pay for that and get a lot of the costs covered through medicare for example or through the health system might pay for it altogether you know so there's this I think there can be this confusion as to who's who's going to foot the bill, and then what that results in is in a whole lot of people, um, you know, pushing back and resisting. Uh, but in your case, that wasn't didn't happen because it wasn't as though they specifically talked about well, you actually, Siobhan, you're better to get that um, through through health or whatever it is. It was yeah. rather. Uh, it was rather some other sort of rather obscure sort of reasoning, but I think you know this. It does feel like a lack of trust. Do you know what I mean in the Look, in the I, I, consumer? I, I, I do think there is yeah. a lack of trust, but Ed, I also think one of the what what I detect also is that whoever developed the system whereby you get the pass, so mm-hmm. the person with the disability can be driven around by someone else. I don't think they have a disability. No. I don't yep. think they... So as I tried to explain to New South Wales government at length, is I now have to ask someone to drive me so I can get a pass so they can park to drive me places. They have my photo on file. They've got all my details on file. Just create the pass. I don't... Why do I have to go in there? And mm. th- then once someone drives me into New South Wales roads... Well, that's the person that isn't going to be able to drive me to chemo next week or take me when such and such breaks because I have to um, be, you know, I have to ask people. I can only ask people to do me a certain number of favours. I can't keep continually. Mm. I mean, a lot of people support me a lot of, but this is just unnecessary. Let Leave the favours and the driving and the accompanying for the things that really matter. Mm. And everything that you can just do digitally in your office and mail it out to me, do it. I don't need to show up. Mm. Mm. I think you raise a really good point there, Siobhan, about um, the lived experience. So the person Mm. assessing the request or assessing the NDIS application um, should have a level of lived experience or a certain level of training in relation to living with disability or access and inclusion for people with disability. And I do, from the other um, people that we've spoken to and from my other connections in the world of disability, we do definitely see a lack of that lived experience. Um, mm. And then what comes with that, I think, is a... Um, an overarching judgment around how disabled are you? How how do they assess that you meet the definition or the criteria of the level of disability? And that then influences their um, decision-making process because they don't have that level of education, training or lived experience. Is that something that you would consider in your you know in your experience and also too as someone who is an academic you know who can mm. see that level of um, learning yeah absolutely look I think if if someone with limited vision who was dependent on others to transport them places 
was to design a system, they wouldn't start with the proposition that you've got to come in. We, we've worked yeah. out that actually we can do a lot of things online. So mm. why would you ever try to get someone to come in? And, I mean, it is, it is you know, I've, I've also uh, simultaneously I've got a terminal illness. I've got ovarian cancer. So I, I will be dying, you know, in the next year or two from ovarian cancer. Mm. And so... Mm. Whenever I feel frustrated with, I think, oh, well, you'll mm. be dead soon. Don't worry about it. But this is mm. these are all things that, you know, I think if we had more people with disability mm. um, engaged in designing these these processes, they, they, yes, the lived experience is everything. And excluding people with lived experience is, um, it's, it's wrong. How, how, you know, it, it is really problematic. Yeah, and I think we've seen that this week at the um, Royal Commission into Disability, um, that only 50% of people with disability are employed, you know, have work. Um, and there you've raised a really significant um, outcome as a result. We don't have people with disability employed in meaningful or engaging work at, at half the rate of the rest of Australia, not exactly half, but close um, to half the rate. And that would really mm -hmm. uh, change that experience, I think as you're just referring to there. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm really interested in your other research and how it, how it links with your experience here um, in terms of, you know, this like the narrative that we hear about the NDIS so often in the media is quite, I have to say, irresponsible in terms of it was always, con it was always designed to be a productivity initiative. So, you know, it was meant to, uh, you know, release people so that they could contribute and be part of the community and that there would be all sorts of other flow-on benefits for the Australian community and society. And I think it's, in, in all truth, the NDIS is all eyes on Australia for something great. You know, like, I'm serious. Like, in, the, in all the things that we don't perhaps do so well as a country, if there's one thing that, that people are interested in is what is Australia doing in the disability um, support space? So I think that sort of narrative that we hear, I get really frustrated with all the time of spiralling costs and, you know, the, um, yeah, the, oh, it's just <laughs> maddening, um, the cost, <laughs> cost blowout stuff, because it's just not presenting the whole picture we've just seen some research that says for every dollar spent on the ndis is like a two dollar 35 i don't know exactly how they got that figure but it was brilliant this report looking at the productivity gains and and um all of the all of the other great things that flow from those investments return on investment yeah so i just and i i'm you know you've done all this other research siobhan around the the employment um support services and other things which which um i wonder if there's parallels in terms of that thinking like i see so many areas of government we just they just don't even ask the question of how much things cost you know they just do it if it's a nuclear submarine or something we're quite happy to do you know ridiculous things off the back of a, a five-minute conversation with somebody Absolutely. but when it comes to this welfare um and not and it's not really i mean welfare is not even quite the right word it it is it is an investment in in our society and our people um and i i just really would be love it love it if we could change the narrative somehow i don't know I'd love to get your thoughts yeah, so Australia has two. Australia has various types of welfare to work systems. Mm. 
One of them is DES, which is the Disability Employment Services, and that is a system that I have not researched in depth. And the reason I haven't researched it in depth is that we have just within the research team I've been working with, we've just decided to, to look more fully at the kind of the mainstream system, which is often referred to as uh, Job Network or um, Job Services Australia. It's, you know, it's had, it's had various mm. names. Mm. And so, um, I yeah, so I don't know a huge amount about DES, but what I do know about Australia's mainstream welfare to work system is that it is a good system with people who are basically ready to work and can mm -hmm. find their own job, but mm -hmm. it is not an effective system when it comes to investing in people who are significantly um, disadvantaged or need, who need a lot of support in order to get them back into the workforce. Okay. And yep. so it is very well known to be that kind of system that... And it, it, it cannot effectively invest in people who are very, very vulnerable and who are very, very, yeah, the, I guess the vocabulary we use in that sector is who have a big distance to the workforce. Right. So that could be people who are homeless or people who have uh, significant mental health issues or even people who need a lot of dentistry. It'll be very mm -hmm. hard for them to find a job. And the problem the government has in designing the system, it's a fully privatised system. Mm -hmm. And the, the problem the government has is getting the policy settings right so the money is invested in the job seekers. Mm. Because the private companies that are running the system, they can't quite see how they're going to make their money back by, you know, they basically make money by placing people into work. Mm -hmm. And with people with very, very significant barriers to employment, it's, un, you know, they perhaps think it's unlikely they're going to find a job, so it's unlikely I'm going to get a return on investment. Yeah. And so that's a very particular kind of model that I think is perhaps a different logic to the NDIS. Yeah. Mm. Um, but... But perhaps it's not so different, Ed, when I hear you talk about it as a system that is designed to to get to, to have people in the community, effective members of the community. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think there's, that's always dangerous, isn't it, when you have create disincentives to work with the most complex people. I mean, I don't, I don't, don't really see that so much with the NDIS at this point because typically those individuals do do receive a, a higher package of support. So you are, um, as a provider, you're, you're better resourced to support that individual. And it's an individual package of support. So it's, it's attached to that person. So, you know, yes. they're, they're, you know, if you're audited against the supports that were provided, it's down to the hour and the minute of, of service, you know, that you delivered. And you can't be dishing that out to other people or, or you know, giving it to shareholders that we don't have, yes, by the way, because we're, profit, yes. um, yes. you know, but yeah, I can see, I can see exactly what you're saying. Um, but, but, you know, there is one parallel though hmm. with the system that, that I'm familiar with so far, just from yeah. my own lived experience and also what I know about welfare to work. And that brings us back to something that we've already touched on, which is that you know, some charities only wanted to work with me when they thought I was going to get on the NDIS, okay. whereas others were happy to work with me because that's their mission. 
Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that we've seen with Australia's welfare to work system that the agencies that were first contracted to deliver welfare uh, welfare to work services were charities that were already working to support people out of work. And now those organisations have changed in a whole range of ways whereby they're not so willing to just kind of help people because it's their mission. They mm. they want a return. Mm. And so they're, they're part of this, you know, they become, you know, they join this contracting regime and a lot of their effort goes into tendering and winning the next contract. And often that is very well motivated because they employ staff and they want to keep the system going. They want mm. to keep their workers in place and they want to keep their contract in place. But it does affect perhaps the extent to which the organisations are mission-driven. Yeah. And to see this lovely woman from Guide Dogs to come out and yeah. give me my cane and show yeah. me how to use it and take me around and in two weeks' time she's going to take me on the bus to a busy shopping centre and make sure Brilliant. I'm doing everything correct. And yeah. that's all I really wanted in the, in the start, uh, yeah. you know, from the beginning. And I thought the NDIS was what would give it to me and... Yeah. Um, you know, perhaps it would have been lovely if it had have come through the NDIS. And, but, but then it may, raises a question about the charities that won't do that for you unless you're on the NDIS. Yeah. Thank goodness there are some that will. But it does, it does change the landscape. Look, it mm. certainly does. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean... Um, I yeah, guess that... it's around Ed delivering those services, isn't it? So... Mm. You know, not to disparage the charity that you're talking about, but some of the service providers that were charities can no longer operate under that model because they're not funded to do so and they don't have the ability to raise money through charity. Um, I mean, that whole raises another issue around should people providing services to people with disability operate under the paternalistic model of charity um, Mm. and should that word be associated with... um, inclusion and access for people with disability Uh, and I guess that's a whole other um, political discussion that we could have for hours but that that is how some of it works you know and some of them have um, the ability to raise money because of the work that they do and how it's perceived in the community and others do not have the ability to do that because their work as we were talking earlier are you worthy as a person with disability of that service and so I guess that that then raises the us and them sort yeah. of model, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and it also, I think, points to another big, big issue, big can of worms that we won't have time for today. But, um, you know, also I would like people who work in the disability sector to be paid like professionals and well-regarded and well-remunerated. And these uh, private companies also have the tendency to try and... Um, you know, drive down wages or keep wages quite modest at the front line, the people who are actually client-facing, who are actually working with the people with disabilities. And that's another problematic aspect of, you know, the privatised system. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because, and that is all based on the NDIS model and how they fund and how they pay for different services. And mm. we've talked about that before, haven't we, Ed? Like, Certainly um, have. 
Yeah. Yeah, if you're a person with disability, you're only entitled to have care from people paid this amount. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, mentioning having to go to the ophthalmologist, uh, you know, was over, you know, three to $400 and people mm. are paying that for that service. They're worthy of that amount of money, yet a disability support worker may not be valued in the same way. And we see that with other services like childcare services or nursing, for mm. example. But yes, um, it is creating that um, difference between, you know, um, people... Who is worthy of what sort of care? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. and uh, certainly there's a lot of activity at the moment around the the cost model. You know, the the NDIS publishes every year their price guide. Well, they, I don't, they don't even call it that anymore. It's called the pricing arrangements and price limits. Here's a copy. Limits. <laughs> and, uh, limits. We put can, that word in. Limits. You can you can see it's uh, this year. It's 113 pages long. And um, and there's many thousands of of um, of price points in there, so it's in- incredibly complex. Um, but certainly, they're they're screwing down on uh, the the price um, price points as they call them, and um, to the point where uh, it is really very difficult to provide services um, to people um, and actually break even i know most there was just a recent survey of disability providers um 17 um surveyed uh, only two of them looking that they were going to be um posting a break-even budget this year uh you can't have that you cannot survive that way so it is very dangerous actually we've just seen dsa in sydney um you know go into um administration and now being um, picked up by scope a victorian provider so there's a lot going on you know in terms of the viability of services which is a bit of a concern um so yeah lot, lots of cans of worms in there but we we it's just i think the thing we're all we're all very passionate about the ndis because it's just the most incredible social reform that's happened in this country since the pension uh, is what or Medicare or whatever you want to call it um, whatever the last one was um, and it has so much promise and we've all we're all very invested in it so I think it's been good to hear from you today Siobhan about your experience and I think I really you know feel for that uh, I can only call it ridiculous somehow journey but it sounds like you got to a good place in the end which I'm really pleased and I'm I'm, yeah and I really do believe it I mean I I am not here talking today for me Mm. I'm fine Mm. I'm doing it because there are people who for whom the things I've done you know this bracelet I'm wearing that tells people about me that's $150 yeah the cane that's $200 for some people, that is a huge amount of money. Absolutely. And, you know, it matters for them. The yep. system should be fairer for them. Mm. Siobhan, thank you so much, one, for talking to us today and sharing so much of your personal um, information with us and, and, and doing that wholeheartedly with us. But secondly, as you said, for taking the time to write that um article for the ABC and also for taking on the fight with everything you are already facing, taking on the fight for other people that don't have the same social capital, as you said, or the same voice or the same level of education because they really are missing out and not getting what they need. And we really appreciate you talking to us and taking on that challenge. Thank Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Siobhan. 